Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know, give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. So with me on this very special episode, I have a dear friend of mine outside of the entertainment industry and in the 164 episodes of Beyond the Album Cover, I can say that I interviewed a doctor. So I'm going to let Dr. Christine Ross introduce herself and tell her, let her tell you, the people out there, a little bit about her, what it is that she do. Take it away, Dr. Ross. Hi, I'm Dr. Christine Ross. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I own a couple of businesses, one with my best friend called Faith and Grace of Therapeutic Services, in which we have a group practice here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I also have my own um, private practice called Faith Works Counseling, also here in Albuquerque. So we try to shake it up and, you know, we do a lot of stuff as far as family counseling, individual counseling, but we focus on systemic work, which means we consider the whole family, the whole system of people when we do work. All right. So Dr. Ross, it's an honor to have you on Beyond the Album Cover. Glad that we could finally make this happen. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. As you should be, because you've been hearing a lot about the podcast for years now, so you can finally say, I'm on. Yeah, I was on it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, need, I need a trophy after this, Jarrell. <laughs> yeah. How about I put an IOU and then I'll see the trophy once that STEMI hits? That, that's fine. That's fine. I'll accept it. I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> yeah, because I know some of you all right now are looking at your bank account like you're waiting for those new Jordans to drop with that STEMI check. So let's go ahead and dive right into it. That STEMI check. The, or the stimulus check for if you want to be proper that a lot of people are dependent on that check to be able to do everyday things such as pay bills make groceries keep maintenance on the house and things of that nature but we see that for some who maybe have service level jobs that extra check tend to go mm -hmm. a little bit further so what do you think needs to be done so that we can be able to have that upward mobility to where folks don't have to make that decision of do I not go to work today and have my check be short or do I need to stay home tend to the kids or make a doctor's appointment because I'm feeling under the weather you know I think it's super it's super interesting what's going on during this pandemic time because we all know a lot of people have unfortunately been financially strapped me personally, when you kind of look at the research from some other countries, when you look at what Canada did, what they did in Italy, and they actually had ongoing checks, I feel like that is really the place that we should have been sitting in our own country. Because like you said, Jerome, at the end of the day, some people are like, well, should I be taking care of my kids and making sure they're going to school? Or should I be going to work and, you know, and then with that being said, not having the monitoring that's appropriate for the kids. So, you know, I feel like in some ways, I don't know about you, but I feel like some ways it's a non-choice. It's like, you got to do some of the things you have to do. When we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're looking at food, clothing, and shelter being at that base level of the pyramid that we have to take care of before we even move up to some of these upper levels, even when we consider education around that. So 
it, I, I think it's super hard choice. And I think it's, it's an unfortunate choice that a lot of people have to make at the end of the day. Right. Cause I believe it was Stockton, California or somewhere in California where they did an experiment where they had people at random get a universal income, which is a, which was a set amount every month. And just to see how everything would work out. And they noticed that people's morale was up. They felt a little bit more secure as far as job, knowing that I have extra monies coming in and not really have to make those choices of do I stay home or do I go to work when I'm not in the best condition. And I think that was what former presidential candidate Andrew Yang was trying to run on with this platform to try to instill some type of universal income for here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. No, I 100% agree. I was like, I had looked, uh, saw a documentary. Um, I think it was by, um, what's his first name, last name more? Um, that I do not know. Huh. I can't think of it right now. Maybe it will pop in my head soon. <laughs> but but um, but anyway, ooh, sorry, something just fell off, fell off my desk. Anyways, but with that being said, a lot of people in these European countries, they were like, you know, when they're talking about like, you know how us in the US were always shifting jobs or we're trying to do something bigger, better, nah, 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 nah. Like in these European countries, they don't necessarily do that because they're like, well, I get paid what I need, need to get paid. I got ample of vacation time. Like they get, to, you know, they get to take off state holidays, all this other stuff. And I already have health insurance. So I feel like the mindset is does change when you know you have security other places. And I think that's one of the bigger stressors when we're talking about this pandemic in the US is that people are like, okay, I lost my job. And yes, I can get unemployment, but do I qualify to get on Medicaid in order to... Um, you know, in order to take care of myself. Added to that, some of the people who did get COVID-19 are having, even though they were giving you free tests to see if you you had it, they weren't giving anyone free treatment um, for the people who got it. So then we're looking at, you might've lost your job, so you don't have regular income coming in. Now you may be in the hospital or not in the hospital, but you might still have some long-term impacts from COVID. Some of the hardening of the lungs. I had a friend whose dad actually had to get brain surgery due to having COVID-19. So it's like, it's all these um, um, uh, compounding factors that end up impacting people as a whole. So I think, you know, I, it's, it's interesting to watch. It's interesting the policies we put in place, but I think at the, at the grand scheme of things, when we're kind of looking at capitalism as a whole, and I'm not totally against capitalism, but I can say there can be some tweaks to it because at the end of the day, what we do is put money over people. Right. Profits over people. Cause like how you stated in European countries, probably Canada as well, that they go all out for their workers where we're going to take care of you we're going to have everything that you need to be successful not only as a worker but as a person and when you do that your retention rate is higher because nobody wants to leave 
Exactly. It's higher. People are happier. There's so there is so much research around this. I have no idea why our country has not grabbed hold of it because it's like you know you um, and we even focus at, uh, on this on our own agency that we want to take care of our people because if we take care of them, then they produce good work. And especially in the counseling field, we want good counselors who are taking care of themselves, engaging in self care, and then providing good services for people right and the one thing that i find interesting with some jobs it depends on management because you may have a lead when you're doing your all staff and they would go around and ask everybody one by one how are you doing what mm -hmm. what's new in your life how are you taking care of yourself of your kids and when you have a leader like that that tends to make you want to do more and stay longer because they know that they care about you at the end of the day and they could care less about you hitting your daily numbers or whatever other benchmarks you've got to meet. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm 100% I'm with you on that. It's like when you actually care for the people, then people are going to be amazed how productivity increases, how um, um, workplace satisfaction increases. They're going to be amazed all the stuff that spirals from that as a whole. And, you know, I think we do, we need to do some shifts in our country to get more towards that. Because I think with that being said, connecting it wholly back to the pandemic, if we were taking care of people, then some of the stressors would not be existent. We wouldn't be concerned about the health care. We wouldn't be concerned about the money because our country would be here taking care of us and we would be taking care of our country. I mean, even when we kind of look at student loan debt and stuff like that, we're one of the only industrialized countries that sit there and let our students come out with huge amounts of debt. And I'm one of them. So I can, you know, I'm not going to sit there and hiding on anybody with it, but we come out from the jump with with debt because we went to school and other countries are like no i want you to stay here i want you to work here i want you to contribute to our society we got you bill right because when you think about it you know you're told to go to school for four plus years get a degree through the traditional career track of work a professional job and dow payoff and success but like you stated student loan debt is pretty much shackling a lot of people to be able to have that financial freedom to be able to go on that nice vacation, buy that home, mm -hmm. do other things that you're supposed to do off your adulting list because you got to make these student loan payments and you cannot discharge student loans in bankruptcy. Exactly. Exactly. And I feel like all this stuff comes full circle when we're talking about the pandemic. And by the grace of God, of course, they did pass some legislation in which um, student loans have been in forbearance. And so if people still want to pay them, they can, but they're not, uh, not under any, any obligation to it. But that's still another check on your list, because once they do go into repayment, let's say you or your spouse um, went into the hospital. So now you guys got extra, extra bills you have to pay that still makes it super difficult for you to say, I'm going to put my money towards this student loan pay payment. Um, and essentially, you end up just underwater, just trying to tread. You're just trying to tread water. 
Right. And you mentioned about the medical care system and about how you could be one unfortunate accident or illness away from being in the hole. And we've seen stories about families having medical bills in the six figures and having to do GoFundMes to try to get funding to pay for expenses, which should not mm -hmm. be the case. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous when you really think about it. It's like, huh? Like, and that's one of the arguments within our society is it's healthcare right. And I'm a huge proponent that healthcare is a right. I do not want your sick butt near me. I don't care if you're citizen or immigrant here. Like, please, like, let's get some healthcare going for everybody so that people, and even when we talk about the spread of COVID-19, you remember, I'm sure, at the beginning of this and all the factory workers and things like that over here spreading it throughout the factory, but they didn't really have the choice to not go to work because it, again, choose feed my family or take off, don't get paid and don't pay your bills. Right. And knowing that those factory jobs, you're all crammed in like a can of sardines. And we know some of those jobs, they're very anti-union because what we're seeing right now with uh, the, the fulfillment center, I believe in Bessemer, Alabama for Amazon, they're trying to unionize. And there's been a lot of blowback from corporate for them trying to unionize and I think unions should be allowed to be formed at jobs without any fear of reprisal or repercussion. And if you remember the movie Norma Ray with Sally Field when she was working at a textile mill and trying to get them to unionize, that was actually based off Crystal Sutton, who was from my hometown of Runner Rapids, North Carolina. And my grandfather actually worked at that particular J.P. Stevens textile mill as a machine operator. Well, and then to that point, what's the um, what's the documentary that the Obama tech came out with? Um, is was it American Factory? I believe um, so. That yeah, you know, that had that same concept there. So it's like we're talking about some stuff back back in the day, but we're also talking about crap that's happening just right now under our noses. And to sit there, and you know, as a professional, I can say because. I have had, I've been blessed to be able to get an education, all this other stuff that I'm not in some of those kind of intense fields that are, you know, hugely labor intensive or anything like that. And I say in a way I've been blessed. I mean, that's just not the job for me. I know a lot of people who do great in those jobs and they need that physical, um, that physical labor in it. However, once those kinds of jobs like GE and um, in Detroit and stuff like that break up, then you have people who had all these high salaries, but because our country didn't think at all to say, instead of just saying, you get out of here, we're going to send this factory to China, to Brazil, wherever they send the factories, they could say, hey, let's, let's go ahead and give you guys some free training. What would it look like if we said we're going to teach you how to do some other jobs so that it's not you just trying to figure it out, especially after people have been working in that field for 10, 15, 20 years. And then 
they're just left to their own devices. <laughs> right, because if you remember prior to NATO, which is the North American Trade Agree Trade, uh, I think agreement or I forget what that was for, but that was the law that was enacted by, I believe, President Clinton, where a lot of the jobs like textiles, GE, whatever, what have you, they would get shipped off overseas because you could do the same labor for cheap because when those jobs were booming, you could easily walk into that job with just a high school degree, work it for 20, 30 years, be able to buy a house, be able to send kids to college and really be able to live good and have that American dream that we've been told about. But since the erosion of those jobs, automation and various other factors, we are seeing the steady decline of that with a lot of urban cities being boarded up, shuttered, and, you know, people, some struggling to find work. Exactly. And I feel like a lot of people, when we look at an actual systemic view of everything, we have to see how everything connects. So we see these jobs, we see poverty occurring because they've lost these jobs, them struggling to make their rents or mortgages. With that, we're also seeing increases in poverty, which also increases crime. So a lot of people don't like that huge connection to see that connection that especially here in Albuquerque, you know, we've been, they've been talking about, okay, Albuquerque is getting, you know, dangerous and all this other stuff. Um, I'm from a bigger city, so I don't really feel like it's that dangerous, but I definitely can see their sentiment there. However, let's look at what's the education in New Mexico. Our main, um, our main insurance here in New Mexico is Medicaid. It's nothing wrong with that. But with that being said, how can we get these incomes um, higher so that people aren't just struggling to make the bare minimum, but how can we make it so that people are actually thriving within our country and within our communities, which again, helps with crime. It helps with um, even innovation within our communities in our country. So it, it's this all um, encompassing concept. Right. And you mentioned you're from a bigger city originally. So how did you end up in Albuquerque, New Mexico and explain your journey to getting your doctorate from UNL? So being, um, and I actually, I've been here since in Albuquerque, New Mexico, since 99. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. So I was born and raised there. So shout out to my KC people. Um, but we, my father, my daddy is a, a, was an electrical engineer. He passed away in 2013, but he came down to be at, um, he was working for Honeywell and there is a, was a web, or I think there still is a weapons internship program at Sandia that he was participating in. It's a two-year program. It was a two-year program at that time. I feel like they have reduced the time since then. Um, and then because I, I'm the baby in my family, then I, um, they stayed here to get me out of high school. My brother was already a senior and my sister was a junior when we got here. So after that, I actually went to TBI, which is now CNM, um, for a couple of years before I went to New Mexico State to get my bachelor's degree in family and child science. Of course, it was more convoluted than that because we know several of us end up changing degrees several times before you actually stick with it. So mine was just by the grace of God. He was like, this is what you're going to do. 
us. Like, I, I can't say I was like, okay. I was like, are you sure, Lord? Which, I mean, and then I still tried some other stuff that I hated, and then I did what I was supposed to do. Then I entered into the, at New Mexico State University, I did family and child science, and then I went to um, marriage and family therapy, which is still within family and consumer sciences in the ag college at New Mexico State. After that, I didn't think I was going to get no PhD. I had no plans getting a PhD. I remember I was now one of my best friends walking on the treadmill. She was like, yeah, I want to be a professor and na, 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 na. I was like, girl, you better than me. <laughs> I'm not trying to do none of that. And then we both ended up at UNM doing our PhDs um, in family studies. So I finished my um, doc in 2017. Um, and you know, honestly, it's just like one of those just blessed roads that you end up down in general, because I'm like, every time the Lord tells me to do something, I'm like, well, why am I doing this? And I'm like, okay, if this is what I'm supposed to do, this is what I'm supposed to do. So, you know, that then led us to, you know, private practice and starting our group practice. So right now, we just started a program called multi-systemic therapy that's um, aimed at youth who are um, displaying some kind of, some types of antisocial behaviors such as drug use, running away, verbal and physical aggression within the home, legal involvement, um, um, low academic success, all these things that we're really aiming towards. And the program shows very um, high levels of success within the youth in our communities. So, and I was a, actually, I was an MST therapist for, I want to say about eight or nine years, um, um, here in uh, here in Albuquerque so you know that's kind of my road to where I am where I'm going only the Lord knows <laughs> right and what's the MST therapist for those that don't know so MST therapist is within that um the the whole realm of multi-systemic therapy it is a um, intensive in-home program so we work with families up to seven days a week we do so, um, at, at least two to three sessions a week, we do regular check-ins and it's really working on reducing behaviors to help these kiddos to be successful. Unfortunately, in the um, state of New Mexico, um, it's only funded by Medicaid. Sometimes you can get it for people who have commercial insurance, but that's one of the big barriers that we see in this state is that, you know, kiddos who, who struggle with behaviors, it's not just people who are on Medicaid. It are, it's, um, it are, it's also affects youth that are on commercial insurances. So MST therapists have a lot of work they have to do. They are basically 24-7 workers. And I say, I say that in quotes, 24-7 because that's the end of the day. Our job is still to set up the plan so that even when we're not in the home, they have safety plans and de-escalation plans and monitoring plans in place in order for the parent to feel that there's um, that they can um, have some success within their home. It is a parent-led program that is geared towards youth that are about 12 to um, 12 to 17 years old okay and typically how long does it take from start to finish finish a phd program it all depends on the program you're in so 
I started mine. I want to say we were in it for like seven years. Cause yeah, it was seven years. It was from 2010 to um 2017. But I will say for the most part, your coursework is pretty tip, it's usually um pretty short. It's not so I think we finished our coursework in like two or three years. The rest of the time is just getting research going. It is getting your participants. It's getting actually dissertating is the remainder of the time. Right. So if you're planning on doing a PhD, get your research game, get your writing game, get your speaking game up because that's what you're primarily going to be doing. And if you thought that they take testing seriously at undergraduate PhD, if you don't pass, you cannot go forward with the program. So they don't play no games. Mm -hmm. That is no joke. And honestly, a lot of it too is just having to balance working with uh, uh, working with egos and academia is some of it is too. So, you know, you actually, you really have to show yourself to be well-rounded and balanced and being able to balance personalities and getting your stuff done. Right. And what we're seeing in academia with, you know, colleges having to adjust to the pandemic as well, that some schools are hiring a lot more adjunct professors for adjuncts. For those that don't know, that's primarily just a fancy way of saying part time. You don't really have the benefits, the luxuries of a professor that is tenured, which is pretty much almost like immunity where you're guaranteed a job for life. So can we just talk about that shift within the college system with more adjuncts getting hired and kind of sort of stepping away from getting professors with tenure. You know what? It's interesting because I definitely feel like it's hugely a funding issue. And some um, some colleges within the university setting are like on their A game as far as having tenured professors and so on and so forth. But the bigger difference that I've seen within the academic realm is at the end of the day is how much research is this college or department producing, which really kind of shifts your ability to become a tenured professor because at the end of the day, that's where the money is brought into the university. So they want people who are producing research. The, the colleges and departments that don't produce as much research, they tend to have lower levels of funding um, because they're not getting a lot of grants and money and all that other stuff within their department for them to do that. I think, I don't think it's necessarily a bad shift though, that they have more adjunct professors because I think when that occurs, you actually have people who are working within that field. So it's not like for, for instance, I know a lot of people who um, teach counseling at the university level and they currently don't practice. So with that being said, it's kind of a, you know, it can get a little gritty there because if you haven't practiced in a while, you're not able to kind of give a full scope of some of the things that we see within the practice of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And the shift from the academic professor side to the student side, we're seeing now a recent phenomenon of incoming students taking what is known as a gap year, where you apply to a school and then you have the option of either signing your intent to start the following fall or they'll hold your spot for you to take a year to do what you need to do before 
making that leap to college life. Now, when you and I were applying in college, a gap year was unheard of where you would probably just wait to apply the following year or whenever you're ready to go to school as opposed to applying when everybody else in your class will be applying and then taking a year off and starting the following year. So what makes you think has led to that trend of students taking a gap year before they enter college? I feel like a lot of the students don't know what the heck they want to do. So even like when I said on my journey, even becoming, you know, getting my doc, I'm like, you know, at first, and, and I know the field I was supposed to be going into, but I noticed family studies and psychology are two different things, but to sit there and have kids to just hop out of being from their, their parents' house and then have to decide 100%, this is what I want to do with my life. At the end of the day, especially for us that didn't have parents to pay um, for our full college, it's like, that's a lot of investment you're making for something you really not necessarily sure of that you want to do. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that makes totally sense because unless you're prepared mentally, emotionally, spiritually in all phases, then that first month or two of being away from home can be a real hard thing to get through because I known a lot of friends that ended up transferring or ended up taking the leave because, you know, it's a big deal to be away from home for the first time. Mm -hmm. especially when you have strong family systems and family support around you. Like, even though I went to the junior college for two years and I only moved three hours away, it was still rough for me <laughs> to be going, you know, and I, I was like at my parents' house to see my mama and daddy, as well as my brother and sister, probably every weekend, if not every other weekend. <laughs> Um, being there so I think it's a shift and I think to that point in this generation of helicopter parents some kids like I was still prepped I I just missed my family and I ended up adjusting and I loved New Mexico states but some parents are hovering so much over their kids that their kids actually do not have the skill to, to leave the house. Like, you know, as your kids get older, ideally you have to give them more freedoms while they're under your covering. So then about time they're ready to launch out of the house, whether it's they boomerang or fully launch out the house, that you know that you know that you gave them what they needed in order to be successful. Like we can't predict for everything, but did we get to the best of our ability, did we give them the skill to be successful? So I think that's a stressor um, when you have these, uh, these hovering parents and they, so kids leave out the house and they over here acting a fool because they're like, look, ain't nobody got it. Ain't nobody telling me when I got to be home. Nobody's telling me that I need to do homework or this, that, and the other. So it's important that we prepare for that structure. But I think the bigger thing is I don't feel like kids need to go to college right after out of high school if they are not ready to do that. Like, I do feel like we should allow more, more openness to say, like, see what actually you want to do. Um, sometimes you can discover that in college, but you know, that's the expensive price tag to just right. to discover it. Here. Right. Cause what I would do is say, Hey, 
you know you want to go to a four-year school, right? But here's what we're going to do to try to save some money. Go to a junior college for two years, take all your basics, save all that money, then you can transfer into a four-year with sophomore credits. So that way, they'll shave a couple of thousand dollars off the total bill. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I'm a huge advocate for that. And because to your point, I actually, in a lot of ways, like community college is better. I feel like the, the atmosphere is not as stress inducing as it can be at the university level. The class sizes are more similar to what you see in high school. And they have, a, um, there's a more variety of types of people there. There's a lot of non-traditional students there, which means there's a lot of students there that is like, I'm here for business. Like we're not getting into all this riffraff drama stuff. I'm here to go to school. And I feel like that's a good skill to learn when you're around a, a good variety of people when you're in college. Right, because if you look at a lot of the movements now with charter schools and the early colleges on high school campuses where you have dual enrollment, where you can get your associates, your high school diploma, leave there with already sophomore credits. So that way, by the time you get to a four year, you're out in two years. But I know for some kids, they are missing out on that good college experience. There's nothing like getting in that uh, small dorm room for the first time, that excitement of knowing who your roommate's going to be, meeting your some of your lifelong friends maybe you may run into your sweetheart there college is just a time where you get to learn who you are and figure yourself out mm-hmm. well and i think it to what you're saying like we i think a lot of people have to keep in mind that the human brain doesn't finish developing until they're 25 years old so when you think about that in a realistic manner like is it okay that we're making that decision at 18 when your your brain's not even fully cooking, fully finished cooking yet? So I I, I totally agree, but I there is so many experiences. I never had the dorm life experience, but I did live live in the student apartments um, when I moved moved to Las Cruces. But I feel like most of my best friends um, that I'm not related to, I met them in college. Um, and I know even I was looking at some, um, the news, this was probably a couple of years ago. If yeah, I think it was a couple of years ago, but they were saying a lot of the kids today are looking more into trades than they're looking into actually for your education, because with these trades, you can be out maybe, you know, if you want to do a CDL, I think that's like a month. Um, that you can do that. You pay good money. That's a needed field. Um, you can become a mechanic in short periods of time. So we're looking at a lot less money, but we still see a lot of things around the same earning potential um, as other jobs. Right. So, Cause I, yeah. Because I believe in some so, countries, they um, have a academic career track and a vocational track and then you have specialized trade schools let's say for trucking for nursing business whatever what have you so by the time you're out of high school you can go to work as soon as possible because you have all your credentials or bona fides Mm -hmm. well and i think to that point giving giving people even the ability to be like you know it's okay 
that you don't know what you want to do right away, it's okay if you want to be a beautician, hairdresser, mechanic, all this other stuff. Because I tell people all the time, like, I feel like some people turn their nose down at some jobs. Like, oh, you, you work for the sanitation department. Like, um, fool, if the sanitation part, department did not exist, guess who would be emptying their own trash cans? You, we would be the sanitation department. So I think, you know, we have to make sure we're valuing all career choices because all career choices contribute in a positive way in society. And it's not everybody can't be a doctor and lawyer. If they are, who's going to maintain the grocery stores? Mm-hmm. And I think to that point, you know, this kind of shifts to the conversation that about, you know, even having a, a living wage that people can actually eat feed their kids and send people to school on. Mm-hmm. Now I want to circle back real quick when talking about the transition coming from Kansas city to Albuquerque. So what was the culture shock and the shift like going from the Midwest to the Southwest and knowing that in this part of the country, there's not a lot of African-American representation, especially in New Mexico, because you make up a small number of the demographic for the state. No, you're you're 100% right. I think that was actually the hardest shift that we had the whole time is that I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, I feel like, what is it? Um, Is it scary movie that he's like, I see white people? Like, I've always had white friends, um, even in KC, but there was, we, I had a ton of black friends. And, you know, at, by, by and large too, I don't think I ever even had a white principal. Yeah, I don't think I ever had a white principal when I lived in Missouri. I think all my principals were black. Um, and even though I was in Grandview, which is a suburb of KC, we still, um, we had Mayor Cleve in KC, who's a black mayor. He's in, in the Senate, I believe right now. So it was a huge shift to be like, oh, you know what, there's a lot of people here that don't understand white culture. And there's a lot of um, covert racism that goes on here that you're like, huh, like, this is super interesting because I meet a lot of people here in New Mexico talking about, oh, there's no racism in New Mexico. And I'm like, I don't know with whom you're referring to. There's no racism against, but I can clearly say there are a ton of racism between Blacks within this, um, within this, this state. Yeah, because if you look at New Mexico, a lot, most of the African-Americans from my opinion, this is my opinion, this is no facts, that you're primarily going to be in Albuquerque because Sandia Labs is headquartered out of Albuquerque. You have Kirtland Air Force Base out of Albuquerque. You have uh, Air Force Base out of Clovis. And I believe there's another one in Alamogordo, I want to say. So it's primarily either you're, you're here for Sandia Labs, military, or you maybe got a scholarship to either throw, catch, run, shoot, dribble at UNM or any of the other colleges. No, I I totally agree with you. I feel like most of my Black friends I have here, like I do have some friends who are from New Mexico. However, of my Black friends that are from New Mexico, their parents are not from New Mexico. Like I have, you know, their parents might be from New York, Mississippi, whatever whatever it might be. So I think 
I think it's it's one hundred percent important that we look at um, how we got here, but also trying to band together more as a community. Like, of course, we do the nod here, and like, and honestly, this is around the country that when you, especially when you're in corporate America, or you know, and you're you know you're working and it's in predominantly white communities, you got to acknowledge when you see a black person like basically out of respect I know the struggle like I see you Mm -hmm. kind of thing and I think that's one of the things that you really end up taking for granted when you are um when you're from um communities that have a rich black culture there right because one of the first things that I was thinking about when I moved out here I was like where am I gonna go to get my hair cut because if you don't know folks a haircut is sacred, especially if you have a barber that is particular to you. You don't even have to say a word. The barber knows exactly how you want your haircut before you get in that chair. And it's almost sacrilege to get another barber to cut your hair if you don't already have a second barber in rotation, if your main barber is not there to take care of you. Mm-hmm. Now, to your point, black hair is a billion dollar industry and billion with a B. And it's it's important that we actually kind of pay attention to that. So to your point, one, I used to have a faux hawk for a while. I had a fade for a while. Did I know you when I had a fade? I don't know. I think it was the know. mohawk phase <laughs> that I first met. I had a faux hawk with you because I'm now thinking about it at Chandra's wedding. I had a faux hawk. Um, Nonetheless, like I don't let just anybody be touching my hair. Like even right now, I have my sister locks. Ain't nobody just about to put their fingers in my hair. I have a a good friend who's white who does hair and I had, and she's really good, but I had referred my, one of my best friends to her. So I saw her dad at the shop and stuff. He was like, why are you here? Is so-and-so doing your hair? I said, heck no. And I I realized, I'm sure he thought I was being rude and I wasn't trying to be rude. I'm like, she ain't doing my hair. She don't do black hair. So she's not touching my stuff. Right. And the barbershop beauty salon for the African American community is a sacred, a safe space because that's where you go to find out what's going on in the neighborhood. Your beautician or your barber is kind of like your unlicensed therapist where you can get stuff off your chest, where you can be your full unapologetic self without having to co-switch. And now with both of us going to PWIs, for those who don't know PWIs, predominantly white institutions, and you're kind of having that slice of HBCU, historically black college and university life on a PWI campus, we're starting to see a shift where we're starting to see more African-Americans starting to apply to HBCUs more than let's say back in the 90s when the different world was on it at its height because they said through that show, HBCU enrollment went up, I believe, 300%. So can we just talk about the importance of HBCUs and we're starting to see the resurgence of enrollment at historically black colleges and universities? Sure, I mean, HBCUs are such a blessing and it's really important staple within the black community. Even as we look at how these colleges were created, it wasn't like it was these people that were just 
independently wealthy, like that they just came about, but it, they came through struggle. So, I mean, I kind of think back, I'm like, man, I should have went to an HBCU. Like I, I do, I, I have thought about that even recently, but I'm like, man, why didn't I do that? I, I should have moved in. A lot of mine was probably more about my my parents and my siblings were here and I'm like I'm over here crying and I'm only three hours away so if I moved out of the site but they're they're such an important part of our community especially when we talk about even this narrative still being spoken about with beliefs that black people are not educated Black people are very highly educated, specifically when we look at Black women, we're the most highly educated group of people in this country. I want to say that Black, again, Black women are most highly educated group of people in the United States. So when we look at that being able to go to a college that you can be yourself, that sees you for who you are, and you're actually be able to, you're actually able to be active and be seen as a part of your culture. Like I love it that Kamala Harris went to at HBCU. I, I totally love it. And I love that that's being represented in the White House. And not to, and we want to, you know, even step this game up a little bit to, to make it known that. HBCUs are actually excellent schools too. It's not, they're not just like, oh, this is just for black people. Like they have provided a lower level of education. No, they're very well-known schools throughout even the world. So I think it's really important that we denote that. Yeah, because within North Carolina, I believe there's nine HBCUs, uh, someone can correct me on this if I'm wrong. I went to University of North Carolina at Greensboro, which was maybe a little less than 10 minutes up the street from North Carolina A&T. And I was about 25 minutes up Interstate 40 from Winston-Salem State University. And then you're a little more than an hour drive from all the schools within the Triangle area of North Carolina, that's Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. So your North Carolina Central's, Shaw Universities, St. Augustine, and then you have Livingstone College out in Salisbury, North Carolina, Johnson C. Smith out of Charlotte, Fayetteville State University out of Fayetteville, and my dad's alma mater, Elizabeth City State University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think to that point, in from my in my home state, the Show Me State, we had Lincoln University and in Harris Stowe State University, um, that are our HBCUs there. So you know, they're they're important steeples of the community, and I think it's important that even as society, we start um, walking better and and understanding better that. Black history is American history. And I say that, and it's, of course, can be seen as a cliche, but Black people in the slavery we were put through, we created this country. And so it's not, you know, these narratives that say Black people are lazy, Black people are this, that, and the other. So if, if we're so lazy, how come we were, were slaves? How come we were working in the fields? How come we were doing all these things? Like there, I, I would challenge anybody listening to this show right now, just look up Black um, inventors and see how many things you, you, you can uh, round in the list that you actually knew that a Black person created. 
So I think it's, it, we have to see our history as all encompassing and that's the good with the bad at the end of the day. Right, and I gotta mention Bennett in Greensboro. Shout out to all my lovely ladies that are Bennett Bell alum. And we mentioned HU, Howard University, VP Kamala Harris, an alumnus of Howard. So shout out to all my folks who are Bisons, just anybody that are alums of HBCUs because if I had a do-over, if I could go to school out of state, I probably would have wanted to attend Morehouse out of Atlanta. And Atlanta has been the blueprint for showing upward mobility, financial, economic success, self-empowerment for you know, different sectors of the African-American community because you just see Black excellence everywhere, Black wealth everywhere. It's real life Wakanda, as we, as we say. <laughs> yep, yep. I 100% agree with you on that one, Jarrell. Like, and I love Atlanta. My nephew, um, my nephew lives there. Um, and you know, the whole foster side of the fam of my nephew's family lives there. And like you said, it is like, it is a city of black excellence and there's black ex excellence throughout our country. But I feel like if we could say a true metropolis of black excellence, I would name Atlanta yep. as that. Yep. Atlanta, the city that gave us CNN, Coca-Cola, TBS, TNT, lemon pepper wings, so good that guys were leaving the NBA bubble for, and they gave us the great thing that was once known in the 90s as Freaknik. Freaknik. <laughs> I love I love how you just a wealth of knowledge, Jarrell, because I'm like, every time I talk to you, I know I, I learned something different. That I I had I didn't hear about the whole NBA leaving their bubble to get some lemon pepper chicken. Yeah, Lou Williams infamously left the bubble to go to a I'm gonna say it nicely a gentleman's establishment, and you know what I mean by gentleman's establishment. <laughs> they serve food at the gentleman's establishment. They're known for their lemon pepper wet wings, and he got him some lemon pepper wet wings. And apparently the NBA said, no, you were doing more than just getting lemon pepper wet wings at this establishment. And like I said, it, the wings were so good that he literally risked it all for- Yeah, he got a fine for it. He got a, I think he got a fine plus a suspension. Oh my goodness. I've, I've never had lemon pepper wet wings. I've had lemon pepper wings, but I haven't had any lemon pepper wet wings. Lemon pepper wet wings is primarily known to Atlanta. So next time you go back to the A-Town, you got to go to JR Crickets. They're, they're known for their lemon pepper wet wings, very well famous, but you can get them pretty much anywhere in and around Atlanta. And I'm assuming that's not a, a, a gentleman's establishment. No, 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 no. It's just the this particular gentleman's establishment is known for their lemon pepper wet wings. Because some people down in Atlanta go to gentleman establishments, just like how some of your Fortune 500 leaders would go to Augusta National at Augusta to do a tea time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
No, I get what you're saying. Like at the end of the day, they're legitimate establishments. And you know that realistically, you know, whatever you think about some of the uh, gentlemen establishments, they have provided some income for communities and wealth for for communities. So I I can't hate on it. I can't hate on it at all. Yeah, don't hate on the gentleman establishments. Only went there once before I got this on my finger. So just just to put that out there as a disclaimer. And yeah, I definitely gotta gotta put that out there. But uh that's another story for another day. Um, so is there a difference between Kansas City culture and St. Louis culture? Because when we look at Missouri, the show me state, we tend to think of you know, Columbia, Missouri with the University of Missouri, of course, Kansas City with the Chiefs, the Royals, everything that came out of St. Louis with the Cardinals, uh, formerly the Rams, and then, of course, Nelly put in St. Louis on the map. Yeah, Um, St. Louis and KC are very different. Um, and at the end of the day, I have family in both. My mom's from St. Louis and my, actually, my mom and my sister live there right now. And then my um, daddy is from Kansas City. So like the cultures are totally different. Even our accents are totally different from KC to to, um, St. Louis. And of course, those are the biggest metropolises in Missouri. So everything else in Missouri is just pretty much small towns, college towns, different things like that. But even like St. Louis, if you go to St. Louis, you need to get some Chinese food, period. That's when I go there, that's usually on my hit list. I have two things on my hit list. It would be White Castle and Chinese food. And I use, my new place is um, Unan Chop Suey that I go to. I think it's on, is it on West Florissant? No, I don't think it's on West Florissant. I don't remember which street it's on. But then um, KC, we're the bar- we're we're the barbecue capital and we're the city of fountains. So our plaza area is super nice, super beautiful, and we have some of the best barbecue in the country. I disagree. I, don't care. I disagree. Whatever. We're not going to have a conversation about this, Jarrell. We are going to have a conversation about this right now. North Carolina barbecue, better than Kansas City, better than Texas, better than Memphis. Don't act. The Well, hold up, hold up, hold up. I'm going to give you better than Memphis because we went to Memphis. Well, and you guys went to Memphis after our family went. And I didn't like their barbecue at all. And our family had been to several different barbecue places and nobody liked theirs but I mean I'm no haters on Memphis I do like Memphis as a city y'all so I believe it's better than Memphis but it's not better than KC I believe it's better than Texas too but it ain't better than KC when's the last time you went through KC anyways Jarrell I've never been to Kansas City I want to go to Kansas City personally so I could go to Arthur Bryant's Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to go through, you need to go through KC. And you know, the funny thing is, cause I've been to North Carolina for whatever reason, I never tried their barbecue when I was there. 
it depends on what part of the state, because if you're on the western side of the state, it's more of a western style where it's more of a tomato base in their barbecue sauce. But if you're in my neck of the woods of the state, eastern North Carolina, the sauce is more of a vinegar base and we chop the pig up nice and fine and you get that chopped barbecue taste with the coleslaw and you have some hush puppies and some sweet tea on the side and that's good eating. I'm gonna have to try it next time I'm there. Where is Greensboro? Is Greensboro North Carolina or South Carolina? Greensboro, North Carolina. That's actually where I went to school. So if you go to Greensboro, there's pretty much a whole variety of barbecue restaurants, but one in particular is named Stamey's. It is located uh -huh. off of now known as Gate City Boulevard. But if you know, you know Greensboro folks, High Point Road, right across from the Greensboro Coliseum. So that's one of the big barbecue spots in Greensboro, uh, Stamey's. I'm gonna have to try Stamey's then because oh, actually one of my good friends are about to move there. That's why Greensboro popped in my head. I'm like, I'm, I'm gonna have to try it. Like, I, I highly doubt it's gonna be better than KC, but I will take it if it's comparable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have uh, Stephanie's, a good soul food spot in Greensboro. And then you're also close to Winston-Salem and High Point and there are good restaurants in those areas as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because in KC, one of our big hitting grounds is, um, well, now they have Oklahoma Joe's there and I haven't tasted that. But of course, it's not, it's from Oklahoma. <laughs> but I hear that's really good. We love Gates. I also like... Um, it's smokestack, but it's called, they had switched the name. I'm trying to, and it's like escaping my brain right now what the restaurant is called, but it's old smokestack. It's called something else now. Um, and I love them. And um, like, I, like I said, Gates was what we grew up on, though. We grew up on Gates and smokestack. Yeah, so barbecue's a staple, but one of the main staples, if you grew up in the Southeast US, particularly North Carolina, because this regional chain was founded in Charlotte, North Carolina, and that is Bojangles. Bojangles, better than Popeyes, better than KFC, better than churches, better than uh, Williams Chicken, for those of you that's from Dallas, Fort Worth, Metroplex area, don't at me, and it is a true southeastern U.S. North Carolina staple because where can you go and get a three-piece and a Cajun filet biscuit with bow rounds, which is their version of hash browns, all day long? Hmm. Tell me. What? Don't worry, I'll wait. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about it is, you know, when I travel, it's all about the food where I go. I want to go to the outlet mall and I want to eat something. <laughs> so I'm going to have to try a few of these places because at, at times I go to places just to try the food. But why is Hush Puppies so big in North Carolina? Well, Hush Puppies is pretty much a Southern thing because how Hush Puppies came to be, I believe, it was during, uh, I believe it's one of the wars. I can't recall which war it was. But they took some cornmeal, fried it up. They threw it to a bunch of the dogs that were looking for the soldiers so that they wouldn't get found. And that kept the dogs quiet. So that's how the name Hush Puppy came to be. Now somebody can correct me on this Amen. if I'm wrong as well. I will say this. They do got some good hush puppies. 
in North Carolina. When I went to, I was, hold up, was that North Carolina? Where is uh, Mount Pleasant at? Is that North Carolina or South Carolina? Mount Pleasant, I believe that's South Carolina because that's close to Charleston. I'll take that back. Then South Carolina, they have some good hush puppies. I don't think I've ever, the only place I think I've been in North Carolina is Charlotte. Mm, the Queen City, pretty much every big financial bank has their headquarters in Charlotte, home of the Charlotte Hornets, home of the Carolina Panthers, home of the NASCAR Hall of Fame, because pretty much all of the big NASCAR racing teams have their headquarters in and around Charlotte. Have you been to a NASCAR, NASCAR race? I have not been to a NASCAR race, but I probably will be interested in going to it now since they said you can no longer fly the Confederate flag. Now, since we're on the topic of that, we're starting to have a reckoning in this country with symbols and images that have been long offensive to certain groups in this country. And we're starting to see people say enough is enough. Take it down. We're not going to stand for it. Mm -hmm. No, it, and it needs to happen at the end of the day. Even from my chiefs, we were talking about the tomahawk chop that um, we do and, um, and arrowhead and I, me and my um, family were talking and I was like, well, you know, I was, I was listening to somebody on the news and they, they consider that to be a racism. So my brother even said, well, I can't do it anymore if they're considering it to be racist. So I feel like we have to be super mindful of stuff like that. There is no reason somebody needs to be flying the Confederate flag. Like you can put whatever meaning behind it that you want, but how we see it as black people is as racist. <laughs> Mm, that means yeah. you know, you're not welcome whenever you see that flag. Of course, me growing up in North Carolina, I saw that pretty much everywhere, either hanging on a flagpole outside of somebody's house, somebody wearing it on a shirt, or they have it on a hat or a bumper sticker on the back of a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it kind of like when you even say that on the back of the vehicle, because I was talking to my cousin the other day and I'm like, we kind of really see. Um, like even the whole thing with trucks and flags makes me anxious. Like when a truck with a flag hanging off of it passes by me when I'm I'm going down Paseo or Eubank or whatever, it makes me uncomfortable because I'm like, Lord, please help nothing happen with this truck. Please help no, you know, they don't need to stop with because and I think a lot of people is just the ignorance of their own history that they don't realize how offensive that is and how anxiety provoking it is for other people. And realistically, if, it, if, if you feel like something simple like that is causing harm to someone, what is the point of doing it? Like, it's not this thing just, well, I have my own freedoms. Yeah, you have your own freedoms, but how about I put something that is super offensive to you on my car or on the flagpole in front of my house? Like, what are you going to be looking at me like? Right. That's where you got to understand what's offensive to a certain group may not be offensive to you. So you need to show compassion, empathy, and respect and be mindful that words, images can hurt. Because I don't know if you know about just recently former Miami Heat player Miles Leonard, while he was live streaming, playing, I believe, Call of Duty, said an anti-Semitic slur and that ended up causing them to get traded away from Miami to Oklahoma City. 
and just knowing how offensive that term is to the Jewish community, especially in Miami, where there's a huge, you know, Jewish demographic. No, and I appreciate you bringing up that because I remember during the Trump administration, I want to say it was Trump that said something that was anti-Semitic, which, you know, is not necessarily surprised, but I remember hearing what it was that they said, and it was, I think it was a reference to money, and, you know, I'm truthful in advertisement, I told somebody, it's like, you know, um, and I was actually giving the presentation and I said, you know, I heard and I said, and I was like, well, that doesn't sound offensive to me. But what I had, what I said to myself in that same moment, I said, but it's not going to sound offensive to me because it's not directed towards me either. It's just like the, the um, Confederate flag is not going to be so offensive to a lot of white people because the hatred behind it wasn't directed towards you. So it doesn't matter what we actually feel is offensive or not. The point is, does somebody else feel as though it is offensive? Mm, and then also too, we cannot be remiss on this episode of the podcast and not mention what took place in Atlanta. Uh, this past week with uh, the shooting at, uh, I believe it was a spa, correct? Yeah, it was a couple, uh, was it two or three spas? Yeah, that, and I know that, that the, the I, I, we always have to say alleged shooter, but I know the shooter said it wasn't racially motivated, but I'm sure he might've passed by some massage envies on the way down to those spots. And those didn't get shot up. Like it's it's ridiculous. It's and it's interesting that they said since the Trump administration, there had been a increase increase in violence towards Asian Americans. And it's unfortunate because at the end of the day, black people, we do end up getting the brunt of whatever hate can exist. We are seen, unfortunately, as the low of the totem pole, even though that is not true. We are strong people. And but also with the Asian community that they no one should have to face the stuff that any of us face regarding discriminatory practices and beliefs about people because as a whole though there has been an increase in violence um, and hate attacks towards the Asian communities it's been mostly against Asian women um so it we really have to watch what comes out of our mouths like period <laughs> mm -hmm. yes yeah, so and also Jeremy Lin had mentioned out a couple of weeks ago he was getting ready to play a game in the G League and a unnamed player said called him coronavirus Uh, Y'all can't hear me shaking my head, but I'm, I'm just shaking my head. Like, that's not a thing, people. It's not a thing. And if we want to really kind of go to naming um, viruses and illnesses, let's talk about how many illnesses the white people brought to this country that killed off the Native Americans, that killed off many populations. So realistically, we don't we don't ever want to get in that because then when we when we end up engaging in stuff like that, it shows how much we have forgotten history. Um, period. It shows how much we've forgotten history. So that's not okay to say it's a it's a what was some of the ignorant stuff that comes out as the the con flu 
um, the, what are some of the other ignorant things that they say? I can't even think of some of the other stuff, but that, that stuff is unacceptable and it's not funny. Right. It is no laughing matter. Hate. We do not condone, no matter if you're black, white, native, Hispanic, hate is wrong all the way around. And let's talk about the underrepresentation of the Native American community, because as we know, because of the pressure from grassroots groups, corporate and people telling the Washington football team say, hey, you need to change your name because it's offensive to Natives and then the Atlanta Braves for years, they used to have a mascot named Chief Nakahoma and how that's mm -hmm. offensive to natives and then some schools that had Native American names and imagery, they had to change that and get rid of a real life person dressing up in native garb and doing the war chants and wearing feathers, which in the Native American culture, for those of you that don't know, feathers are sacred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's to that point of us as a, as a country having cultural awareness. A lot of people want to say the U.S. we're this melting pot. We're not a melting pot. We're more of a tossed salad. We have different ethnic groups all over, different languages. The U.S. does not have a uh, uh, the, um, what is it? We don't have a language that uh, is for the country. So it, people can speak any way that they choose. So within the Native American culture, and I feel like I've learned a way more about Native American culture, specifically here in New Mexico, than I ever knew in Missouri. And I know you guys have a lot of um, a big res in Farmington. Um, do you feel like, Jarrell, for you moving here, you kind of got more insight as to those cultural differences? Yeah, I felt like I did, you know, growing up small town, southern U.S., you don't, you didn't really have a lot of exposure to diversity. It's pretty much black, white, you maybe have a couple of Hispanics sprinkled in, but no um, big Hispanic population definitely no Native American. The only Natives that were around my hometown area was only a state-recognized tribe, the Halawasa Pony tribe. But moving out to New Mexico, especially in the northeast part of the state, in the Four Corners area, San Juan, McKinley County, you see a lot more of the day-to-day -day aspects, you know, with Natives, primarily the Navajo tribe, up here and how when you go onto the reservation it pretty much looks and feels as if man more definitely needs to be done for economic empowerment upward mobility and to have them be able to have a seat at the table or representation to say hey we're here we need to have our issues talked about too it's like you know we don't want to we're not a footnote Mm -hmm. No, I 100% agree with you. Me and um, one of my best friends and the co-owner of Faith and Grace, um, Dr. Martin Clare, we were discussing that, you know, we would want to, we do want to look at getting more services within the reservations here in New Mexico, but we, what we, what we talked about, but I would prefer to have native clinicians 
in order to do that. Because at the end of the day, I can learn textbook of the Navajo tribe and, you know, each Pueblo is still different that I can't speak towards that as a whole. I can only speak towards the people that I know, but this doesn't, um, it doesn't say that this means the whole thing for the whole U.S. because I think a lot of people don't, don't want to see the, um, the differences even within cultures, the inner, inner ethnic differences. So I think it is important that there is a seat at the table 100%. There needs to be more representation. Even when we, this is the same thing that what we talk about when we look at Black culture is that you know you can achieve when you see somebody like you achieving, period. So though we want to say that stuff doesn't matter, but we can say in white culture, they've seen a whole bunch of people achieving. There's no reason that white people would think they couldn't achieve if we would just look at how society operates. However, is that true of all the cultures? So I think it's even baffling that they have, um, who was, who took over for Kamala, um, VP Kamala Harris from California and he was the first um, Hispanic senator is, I think it's senator. I don't, yeah, cause she was a senator. Damn, the first I'm Hispanic sure. senator. And I, yeah, I can't remember his name, but I remember like listening to the governor tell him how would your parents feel? Because I, I believe his family was actually um, from Mexico. His parents came over from Mexico and he was like, how would your parents feel for you to be the first um, Mexican-American senator of the state of California, which is with all the diversity in the state of California, why the heck is he the first senator of that of that ethnicity i think that's a little ridiculous right and also believe too that deb helen just got confirmed to be on president biden's cabinet and that's very big you know she was representative for this state of new mexico and is a member of the laguna tribe the laguna pueblo that is west of albuquerque so if you ever visit albuquerque go to Route 66 Casino out that way. That's Laguna Pueblo territory. Mm -hmm, yep, she was just confirmed as the Secretary, Secretary of the Interior. So I think, like you said, it's such an amazing accomplishment. I loved when she was sworn in. It was her and one other person. I can't remember the other lady's name, but they wore their native garb there. And I'm like, I totally love this. I totally love that representation and them even be, being bombastic and then saying, you know, y'all gonna see me. You're gonna see right. what my culture is. You're gonna see who I am. Right, and speaking of culture, if you come out this way, you gotta try some fried bread. Now, fried bread can be a little bit tricky depending on where you go and who makes it, just like any other food that's particular to a certain culture. It got to be a certain texture. It got to look a certain way. But if you get the right person that makes it and you have some would call it uh, Navajo tacos up in this part of New Mexico and the other parts of the state, they will call it Indian tacos. But other than that, it is uh, good eating. So the shift in coming from Midwest to Southwest we don't really realize how food is pretty much almost a 
physical form of a cultural exchange. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, to, I, I love that wording, Jarrell. I totally love that wording. It is a physical form of a cultural exchange because I think here in New Mexico, like there's, there's so many foods that I would not have tried if I did not live here. Like I absolutely love New Mexican food. I love Navajo tacos. Like there's there's so many things that you can learn about people's culture through their food. And I think at the end of the day, as in minority cultures, that's how we share who we are is through our food. Mm -hmm. So I always you know it's always around the table in in minority cultures that we're like you know everybody's preparing their stuff auntie so-and-so does this best so-and-so does this other thing best so and it's it's a way that we go into community with one another right and that's how stories of family history gets told because if you think about the kitchen and how grandma mama auntie daughter, granddaughter, all these generations of women and men too, if they were in the kitchen, get to get stories passed down to them from the elder. And when the elder transitions, then they become the teller of the story of family lineage of those recipes. Because you know, you probably have some recipes that you remember by this and it's not written down anywhere because they say primarily it was told to me by my grandmother or granddaddy and it was told by their dad or their mom and you get to pass on history mm-hmm, exactly like you said there there's some things unfortunately after my granny passed away that we're like shoot nobody really knows how to make it exactly how she made it they knew, you know, we know the ingredients, but, you know, especially the old school ones, our old school grandparents who didn't even measure stuff, nope. that they're like, just put a little bit of that. Like, Granny, how much is a little? Like, at, when I actually know the measurements, then I can actually end up doing it by, you know, just throwing some in here and some in there. But there is so much that you get to know from our grandparents and knowing our history just through through talking and having those meals and really engaging with our family members. I love that during COVID, um, you know, during this time they had, for, especially for native culture, uh, for um, native culture, I don't know if you ever saw that commercial on KLB, um, Jarrell, that they were actually speaking in their native language regarding, you know, protect our elders, because that is the past, the, that's how we pass our history. It's through our elders. Even when we talk about Asian culture, at times they value more the death of an elder than they would of a child because they said, because I knew them, they taught me stuff. There were things that they ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a harder loss. So we do have to, we have to really look at that, these matriarchal and patriarchal systems, because that's how we actually learn and find out who we are. Right. And in, and in terms of finding out who we are, we're seeing a big shift amongst, you know, youth of this generation where they don't want to be confined or labeled to be fitting into certain boxes where I'm not going to identify as this. I'm not going to identify as that. I want to be myself and not feel to be conformed to society standards. So what's your take on that? You know, I think as 
one of those hard things is that, you know, at the end of the day, am I going to, I'm not going to argue either point because I, I know who I am and I can't, I can't say, I, I guess what I will say within development, we do need to allow people to explore who they are. And a lot of the stuff that we believe by ourselves about ourselves are from cultural norms and religious norms and societal norms. So I think there has been a big amount of shifting um, within society based on identity as a whole. For me, I just kind of go by the, uh, by the whole adage or the ideal, and honestly, it's a scripture that we should be known for our love for one another. Like at the end of the day, what I'm working on for myself is that I love people regardless, um, whatever they choose. It's not for me to judge anybody in any way, anyhow, because Lord knows I'm just as greasy as other people that I think is greasy. So we all have our downfalls. We all have our shortcomings. And when we're able to better open our eyes to, to just love people, it actually makes things better for us. We represent ourselves better. We represent our families better. When we're just be like, you know, I might not necessarily agree with what you're doing, but I love you regardless. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that our country has to move towards is that even if you don't agree with somebody that does not mean that they're not worth love that doesn't mean they're not worth breath and life because they are right because i feel like we've gotten away from the discourse of being being able to agree to disagree is either you're on my side of the agenda or not and we're not really coming to the table and saying I want to hear what it is that you have to say about this topic and vice versa. And then we could come at the table and say, we respectfully have different viewing opinions and viewpoints, but at the end of the day, I'm still going to respect you regardless of your opinion. And I think social media has kind of made it so we don't have that civil discourse. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think to your point with that, it's like, it's not even us just speaking and saying I'm hearing you, but it's actually that I care about your opinion. I love, um, I love the saying from Avatar, the movie that I see you is that, you know, I actually understand where you're coming from and where you're at and your positionality within society. So I think it's, we gotta, we actually, we have to be open-minded towards it. and an open-minded doesn't mean you have to agree. I tell people all the time, like what, even when we talk about parenting as a whole, there's going to be a hundred million things that our kids do that we're like, what the heck is wrong with you child? But at the end of the day, they have to explore their world just like we had the opportunity to explore ours. So it doesn't mean it's without love. And we can still do things within love when all these things occur. But, you know, I think it's super hard because everybody wants to be right. I feel like we're a country at times that lacks humility. It can't be we just having a conversation. It has to be someone's right and someone's wrong. And as I tell my families that I work with, especially when they're in relationship with one another, when they're married or in a partnership, I'm like, you know, if one of you guys is wins, then everybody loses, period. If one of you wins, everyone loses because it's not about what is who's right or wrong. It's about what is best for all. Mm -hmm. 
And I want to circle back real quick about the whole food thing, because we mentioned how food is community, but we know that some of those foods are not necessarily the healthiest, made with the healthiest ingredients, and then that causes long-term health issues. And we're starting to see a shift where people are focusing more about health and fitness and saying, I still want to get that soul food flavor, but modify it to have it be beneficial to me health-wise with uh, products that are vegan. I want to make sure this is grass-fed. So what do you feel about that whole movement of people embracing, you know, taking more seriously health and what they're putting into their bodies as far as food and drink is concerned? I'm a part of that movement. I think, you know, Jarrell, I'm allergic to life. I'm allergic to soy, wheat, corn, walnuts, um, oranges. So I'm, I'm allergic to life. But with that being said, I think we do have to be um, uh, mindful of what we're putting in our bodies. I, Me and my sister have had conversations about this. Like, our, you know, our family kind of grew up that, you know, how you season food, it's with seasoning salt, garlic salt, and pepper. Like that's, you would season everything with. But now we've realized, you know, there's so many herbs and spices and all this stuff you can use that gives you those same flavors with less salt, because we all know we have this high blood pressure going on into our minority communities. I, I, for one, I don't do very much frying of anything. Like I literally fried chicken. I think this was like two weeks ago. I made some fried chicken because I've been doing some, the keto diet just because of my allergies. But I'm like, I haven't fried anything in I'm sure at least 10 years. I do not fry food. Like I'll, I'll, I'm like, saute stuff or like do a shallow thing of oil or whatever but I don't deep fry anything so I think it's better for our communities and it's help it's it's making it so it's long lasting for our communities I feel like heart disease is running rampant high blood pressure is running rampant within our my, minority um, communities we get all these gut diseases when I'm talking about within the stomach intestines all these things and a lot of that stuff is based on what we're feeding our bodies in general we need to work on reducing sugar and using more healthy sugars I start I transitioned to using monk fruit um, there's beet sugars you can use there's so many different kinds of sugars you can use that actually have are have more health benefits than just use a white um refined sugars um then we have all these flowers all these carbs there's some research out there that says some the sugars and carbs we consume actually feeds cancers so what I feel like we have to end up experimenting with how we do things to say, can I get something just as good or similar that has a more health benefits for me as a whole? And I think I think it's a really important part of culture and society. Right. And there's a good documentary out there that you should check out. Uh, Soul Food Junkies done by Byron Hurt talks about the history of soul food and the evolution of how we can take what was once was scraps and make it healthy make it more viable economically affordable and that folks don't have to go through food deserts because when you go through areas where 
you don't have a whole food or produce stand on every corner. You got your corner store, you got your McDonald's, you got your gas stations, and you know, all that they serve is pretty much artificial, sugars, fats, pretty much stuff that's not good for you. But if that's the only thing that you have in town, you have no choice. Exactly. No, and I totally agree. And I think our country at the end of the day, there in Europe and you know overseas half the stuff that our country allows in our foods are not allowed in other countries so and honestly i don't i don't eat mcdonald's i don't support the mcdonald's because of some of the stuff they have in their food um now if i'm overseas might i get it yeah because they don't allow some of the stuff in the food that we have here but and i'm not saying their food tastes bad or whatever but what i will say is we need to um look at the correlations of health benefits in general so i think i think it i think it's super tough in general because at the end of the day what is healthy for us like you were saying we have in a lot of our cities we have more corner stores than we have grocery stores. And there's nothing wrong with that. They have, they're more accessible. However, why is an organic product more expensive than a non-organic product? So I remember I was going to a place here locally and they have pretty much all organic foods there. And I go there because I do have so many allergies. And my friend, we were talking about it. I was like, man, the only thing that kills me about this place is they're so expensive. And she was like, well, but they're organic. And I'm like, um, that's how the Lord made food, organic. Like I shouldn't have to pay more for you to put poison in my food. And say, so, you know, it's gonna be, it's gonna be cheap. It's gonna be cheap to eat it if I put this poison in your food, but it's gonna be more expensive if I just allow it to be how the Lord meant it to grow out the earth. Like it's kind of when you really think about it, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you know the reason behind the split between St. Louis and East St. Louis and Illinois? No, I don't. I don't. I don't know anything about that. What you know about it, Jarrell? Only thing I know is that it's St. Louis, Missouri, and then there's East St. East St. Louis, Illinois, and they're like a stone's throw away from each other. I was just curious about that. Now, I want to get your take on how athletes have been using their voices throughout this past year, whether it be with COVID, whether it be with the elections that just took place in November, and even further back with Kaepernick, uh, Mamou Abdul-Raouf, Craig Hodges, and we can go on and on about athletes using their platforms to stand up on issues and not being afraid of blowback. And then with the NCAA and how you have some players saying, no, we're not going to be just pawns for you guys. We want to be able to make money off our image and likeness and be able to capitalize on a system that has pretty much used us for free labor and expect us just to be happy and grateful off a scholarship and not receive any financial compensation for it. So there, I feel like there's two issues on here. So the the uh, I want to get to the scholarship issue in a minute. But as far as athletes um, 
using their voice, I think it is incumbent on them that they use their voices. I think, you know, um, though a lot of our sports are national pastimes, it allows people to have fun, relaxation, really engage in stuff that just kind of is good for your soul. But I think it's incumbent on them that they use their voices to empower their communities and can empower this, this world. At the end of the day, there, it's not a whole bunch of idiots just running around throwing balls and all this other stuff. They actually have other things going in their lives. They have families. They might be minorities. They have their own communities. They might, you know, all these things going on. Like, I really feel like it's, it's a necessity that that stuff happens. Now, with college sports, I'm a little on the fence about that because I feel as though getting education in general and being a student athlete is just as important as the other. However, I understand the conundrum with these basketball coaches at these um, uh, these D1 schools and whatever, um, they are getting, you know, half a million dollars a year, a million dollars a year, whatever they end up getting. So it seems as free labor, but I also understand as a person who has student loans themselves that that is also, if you're getting a free ride in college, that is payment for what you're doing. And I don't want to, I don't, I don't ever want to, um, education to look like a backseat to sports affiliation. Does that make sense? Mm. So I do, I don't feel like anybody should be exploited, but to that point, if I played sports and if I could get a full ride scholarship for, um, for, you know, for my schooling, I'm like, shoot, sweet. Then I can look at all these debts from these three degrees I have and not have to worry about it. However, do I, I feel like when it comes to merchandising, I think something can be done about merchandising um, that because I think that's a whole different realm when we're talking about somebody wearing your jersey with your name and your number on it. Like, is it, could it be a good side hustle for student athletes to be able to make money off of merchandising? I, I you know, I, I think that might be a good idea, but I'm like, if you're getting a full ride scholarship and you don't have to pay for none of your schools and you get a, a degree, while many of us getting, you know, having thousands of dollars in debt and we're also contributing to society, I just don't want it to be this thing that, well, it's better that you're an athlete as opposed to someone who became an engineer or a nurse or a doctor or um, I, I, IT um, person like or a counselor it shouldn't be treated as like it's better right and uh last take and i'm gonna get you out of here your whole take on the whole issue going on with kurt franklin and the conversation that was leaked by, leaked by his son where he used some not so godly language and how it's caused quite a stir hold on, hold on. i hadn't even heard of this one what did he say all right, so what happened was, I guess him and his son had had an estranged relationship and the son had leaked part of a private conversation between the two of them online and Kurt was using some language that wasn't godly. Like he was cursing? Yes. 
Okay. So that's funny because you've talked to me and I'd be cursing too. <laughs> so, but I say this, I feel like we really got to have perspective. When we're talking about the Bible and biblically, what cursing means in the Bible and what we say cursing is in society are two different things. Like me. So I guess the 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 separation might be you're using vulgarities as opposed to cursing somebody. If he's being vulgar about something, like we can use be vulgar about stuff without using curse words based on a um a world culture. Um and I know a lot of Christians or and non-Christians that can be vulgar again without using one curse word. Now do we still we have to really still sift through messaging about what it means like biblically cursing means is I'm actually putting a curse on you like I'm actually trying to harm you in some way as opposed to just using you know explicit language does that make sense yes that so, makes total sense so I so based on what you're telling me I don't necessarily feel any kind of way about it necessarily. Now, um, I feel like I feel more some kind of way about his son being mad at him so he would leak something like that. That's greasy, in my opinion. So I, I don't think, and I, I don't, I want to make myself clear, I don't feel like every other word out of your mouth should be some kind of vulgarity. It should be some kind of curse word. However, it is a form of expression that we use within culture. Now, does that make him a bad person? No, but if you're gonna take some information of somebody that you know, love or don't know and love, and you're just putting out there to harm them, that is a problem, right. but I don't, I don't feel any kind of way about the vulgarity, but I haven't heard what he said either. So right, because some folks tend to put cuss words on the sentences, like Frank's hot sauce. They put that shh on everything. Uh huh. Yep. I mean, and this is this place. I don't know if you ever passed it over here in Bernalillo. They have a place called Badass Coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I have never, I've never tried it. I want to try it, but I've never tried it before. So I feel like at times we need to stop putting stuff, especially as Christians on a pedestal of that, you know, I'm better than you because of this, that, and the other. Because at the end of the day, we all greasy, dirty um, sinners, period. We all, all, all of us are. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't have had to drop, die on the cross for us. However, we do have to be mindful of time and place and how we are using our language. Because for all I know, he could have been cursing his son, like seriously, um, like biblical representation of cursing. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to check it out because I definitely didn't hear this, this drama. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's everywhere online, so you can find it on any blog or whatever, what have you. So um, before we wrap, do you have any people that you'd like to give shout out to and thank? And if you are on social media where folks can learn more about your private practice, how can they find out more information? So I'm better if you guys look at me at either www.faithworks.today or www 
www.faithgrace.today. I'm really not, I'm on social media, but I don't check it like that because, you know, sometimes it just ends up just running your life. All this drama, especially about race and racism. I, I had to take, take a step back for that. But I definitely want to get a shout out to you, Jarrell. Like, I really appreciate you having me on your show. I've really enjoyed my time here. You know, I'm like, I'm praying that you be blessed through this endeavor and that you're able to have this as a full-time experience. Of course, I want to give all love to the Ross fam because that's who I'm from. So shout out to the Ross fam. Thank you guys for everything. And I appreciate you again, Jarrell. All right. You can catch this interview wherever you stream your podcast, Anchor, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Verbal, Video on YouTube, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover on the or on the brand new website beyond the album cover.wordpress.com ladies and gentlemen there you have the interview with my good friend first time ever interviewing a doctor on beyond the album cover dr christine ross thank you so very much dr ross thank you all right